2: No turning back, John. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey,
0: my name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome home to your Boo Crew 346. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We are back again for the second second episode this week with a boo crew bulletin If you got this in time, at time of release tonight is your chance to see the fantastic new horror film The Retaliators at a theater near you. This is a fun, blood-drenched ride that has it all. From the insanity of Evil Dead, the grime of exploitation, grindhouse flicks from the 70s to the 80s canon film titles, all the way to The Crow and Tarantino. It is set ablaze by the heavy music and acting cameos from the likes of Ice Nine Kills, Motley Crue, Papa Roach, and Five Finger Death Punch, just to name a few. Drive to the theater with this convo we did today with co-director, producer, and star Michael Lombardi and Spencer Charnas fresh from the tour bus before tonight's Ice Nine Kill show in Michigan. Hear all about putting together this out-of-control, multi-award-winning movie metal, mayhem, gore, and so much more. RetaliatorsMovie.com for all the info on how and when you can experience it. For now, episode 346 with Michael Lombardi Spencer Charnas is now slaying
2: Go ahead, scream That's all we need Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy
0: Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studios an acclaimed prolific and adventurous storyteller As an actor his credits include starring in the Emmy-winning series Rescue Me J.J. Abrams Six Degrees the Emmy-winning CSI Miami ABC's Castle and tons more Trained at New York's prestigious William Esper Studios He's produced plays, produced and directed feature films, music videos for Papa Roach, Bad Wolves, Asking Alexandria, and even formed his own band, Apache Stone. His newest project is not only one that he has produced, but co-directs and stars in as well. It follows a pastor who descends into a dark underworld while trying to solve the murder of his teenage daughter. Now, what transpires is pure, blood-drenched mayhem and unexpected twists and turns that are going to leave you breathless. At time of release, The Retaliators is in theaters today only. The unbelievable soundtrack out september 16th from better noise music with five finger death punch motley crew and more featuring members that also star in the film we're honored to welcome one of the primary architects of this frenetic experience mr michael
1: lombardi yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> Jeez. that was some intro man first of all you sound amazing you put a lot of lot of info into a, a short time and uh it was flattering. So oh, thank man. You. The amount of stuff that you <laughs> that
0: you do and continue to do is seriously mind-blowing, and this film is a real testament to all that. So, first of all, I guess, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Congrats on this extraordinary film. It's already earned at least eight awards and over a dozen nominations at festivals all over the world. Quite simply, man, how does that make you
1: feel? Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because I don't – I. I think it's just always all about the work. Sure. So still we're bringing this thing across the finish line, actually, I don't think I've been able to take a full step back a few times in the last few days. I thought that I did. I'm just being very transparent here because I'm, I'm hearing other people talk about it and we did get some accolades. So you're like, okay, because the things that I fought for so hard Creatively, It's not easy to make a film, especially with the pandemic and everything that's happened. There's little things that I loved in the script that I read on the page that are your goal is to try to get that on the screen. And it's so hard to do because you're not only through the filming process, but then again, through the editing. And that could be changing locations because of, you know, circumstances, COVID, uh, egos, people not understanding it. So I guess what I'm honing in on is the thing that I've taken away the most are some of the things that I really believed in when I read the Gear Brothers story that we fought hard to get on the screen, genre people and others are really picking up on. So that's what's making me most proud right now, because I remember I could even smell the time it was in the air when I was fighting that battle, if that makes sense, whether I was on set or wherever it was so that's been pretty cool for For sure well
0: speaking on that note how I mean that must have been really challenging to be kind of overseeing the whole thing while trying to focus on delivering this incredible performance we see and then you've taken the helm as as co-director in some aspects which we'll talk about as well how did you manage to achieve that balance and and still kind of stay in the mindset of actually just like being
1: in the movie at the same time Thanks. Uh, it's crazy if you try to talk about it now and you're like, oh, you did this, you did that. A few things. One is, well, you, you mentioned my television show Rescue Me earlier. Well, when I was on that, I did almost 100 episodes of that show, just about 100. And Dennis Leary was the star, the co-creator, and uh, a producer. So I think I picked up a lot from him. Maybe I didn't know, understand what I was getting then, but I'd known him for a while. Uh, I did a, a guest star in the show The Job on ABC. That's how the relationship started. Then a year later, he had a show on Comedy Central. It was a spoof on Project Greenlight. Remember that with the Ben Affleck? name and thing. It was called contest searchlight. It was really funny. Anyway, I did that with him. It's like a, it was a spoof. It was, it was, I win the contest to make my own TV show and like everything goes to hell. It's really funny. So I knew him for that for five episodes. Then a year later, rescued me for a hundred. So I saw the way he was able to, uh, it, you know what it is? It's all about the work. I mean, end of the day, that's it. All the other stuff maybe comes later, but you have a vision and you fight for it and you work for it. So with this, um, I I honestly didn't sleep much. I think the cool thing was I understood the script very well. And I also um, understood the character from the beginning and I did a lot of homework on it all and a lot of preparation. So then when I was on set, it was just about putting my feet on the ground being truthful in the moment because I had built in all those layers inside and did my homework and trusting it. The other thing I can add is I said, there's not much sleep. There were bombs going off. Well, as I said, with COVID and filming 12 hour days, going back to the hotel on some days, having to take an hour and an hour shower. Or so just to get all that fake blood off of you, pumps and bruises, then having put out fires for the next day, being a producer. So I used a lot of that exhaustion it's because by after the first act, my characters like, right. Or maybe the first half of the first act. So you could pull from that. So I, I was tired and it played and I was stressed and it played. So I think when I look back, all those things actually helped in the Yeah,
0: definitely added fuel to that fire that we see. So going back to the very beginning, talk about the work. Tell us about the journey of Kind of getting this project made, beginning with discovering this this script by the Gear Brothers. What has
1: become yeah. their debut feature? It is, and you know, here is what happened. Uh, I was I was on this movie set, and uh, I, I, I was doing a charity event. Right, uh, maybe it was like a month, three weeks from the day that I, I contacted the Gear Brothers. The reason why I did is several years ago, early two thousands, mid two thousands, I had a band. And we had a record deal. I was with MySpace Records, small record deal. And I would be back and forth from New York. I'm like an East Coast guy, but I'd be in LA a lot. And my music manager at the time said, "Hey, listen, you have to meet Darren Gear. This guy's an amazing songwriter. Gear Brothers. They had an incredible band. They had a record deal back in the day. You need to write music with them." So. I would drive from LA about an hour and a half to Southern California, and creatively, we just really hit it off. Like our tastes were so aligned. We, uh, it, it was just a very excellent collaborative process. We were inspired by the same things musically. Cut to three, four years later, we hadn't spoken. I'm back. I'm on this movie set. And I have to do a charity event. As I said, in about three weeks, I called Darren and I say, hey, man, listen, this song we wrote, Heaven and Hell Collide, I have to drop it half a step. What do you think? It's already in drop D. Is it going to be muddy? Let's talk about this. Blah, blah, blah. What have you been up to? And he says, my brothers and I have been writing screenplays. And I said, send them to me. And he sent me a bunch of the retaliators. I read it and everything just... Uh, the, the the Dante gremlinsy at Dante esque gremlinsy Spielbergian beginning this this Sin City graphic novel into this wink at the eighties the, the music jumped off the page not that it was like song here I just felt those remember all the great soundtracks the yes Lost, Judgment Night the Crow and I was like and then like the terminator or the bad guy no layers to this guy he's just cold as ice i loved all that and all the little winks in it and then even like the i, I love like the spaghetti string westerns and clint eastwood and and uh, charlie bronson i saw this and i, I just thought it was so cool and he's like uh, yeah that's what it is and he that was his inspiration for writing and uh i'm like we got to make this thing now I know I'm going off here, but you want to hear the next part of this? I mean, of this course. Story?
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, These are all the films that we all grew up on too, man. I mean, you know, right. right the great Canon films and you know, the yeah. death wish movies and all that stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we, he and I were, were inspired by. Like I, I, as I said, our tastes were aligned. So I was, and then you, of course you have the wink of, uh, uh, uh evil dead into the Tarantino ish third act, just everything. Uh, so, So I I end up performing the song. Oh, I was on a plane like three to five days later to get the script. So I end up performing the song at the charity event, and Alan Kovac is at the charity event, and he is the uh, founder, uh, the 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 CEO of Better Noise Music, and he represents over forty amazing rock bands: Spencer Charnas, Ice Nine Kills, Eva Under Fire. Uh, uh, motley crew five finger death punch all these great bands and back in the day and the bgs meatloaf and he's like look um let's make this movie michael what he did he, he he appreciated my creativity we had known each other a little bit but my performance and the way i did this charity event and i and these are his words and we hit it off but what's so serendipitous it was a song that I wrote with the Gear Brothers, and that I called them about for the charity event. That I learned about their script, and then Alan said, "I got you. Let's make this." And his loyalty and his commitment to it never wavered. He saw the music jump off the page, and then he had me call, you know, collaborate with all his incredible musicians, and uh, and 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 here we are.
0: And here we are indeed, as we are joined by one of them right now, Spencer. Can you hear us, man? Yes. <laughs>
2: I can. How are you guys?
0: Awesome. You sound great, man. Well, according to my, uh, according to my, my calendar here, uh, you'd be in somewhere in Michigan tonight,
2: right? That's right. Yeah. We're about to play a show uh, just about 100 yards uh, that away. That's extraordinary, <laughs> that true, man.
0: Yeah. Part of the, uh, the the Trinity of Terror tour uh, with Motionless and White and Blackfield Brides. And so you make a cameo in this film. As Max, so tell us about kind of getting approached, finding out about the project, and and ending up <laughs> ending up in your scene as Max.
2: Yeah, it was it was uh, an honor to be a part of. Uh, you know, I, I've known Michael for I guess now about two to three years, and uh, he's so passionate about this project, and uh, he's such a nice guy, such a talented guy that um, I was happy to be a part of it, and it was really cool to film it because it was right in the midst of covid and it was really an excuse to get out of la i hadn't left the city um since the lockdown had happened so i got in the car with my girlfriend and our manager mike and we drove to vegas and uh and filmed a scene where i get to uh do drugs uh, with beautiful women and I don't want to give away, I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, but, uh, you know, yeah. get a bunch of uh, weapons shoved in in, in places and uh, I couldn't be happier to be a part of it. <laughs> well, we were just talking about
0: how this movie really kind of harkens back to some of those, uh, the, the movies that we grew up, the greatest genre movies ever made, everything from the crow to death wish to God to enter the ninja movies and, and shit. This, this harkens back to all that. You know, a lot of these movies had villains, e- even ones in the um on the peripheral. The villains all were larger than life. They were all huge characters. You remember people like Funboy and the Crow for instance. And Max is is exactly one of those characters that I think of when I think of those. Did you bring any kind of backstory to your version of Max? Who was this guy before? Why he was there or did you just kind of roll with it?
2: I just kind of accepted my environment as being in this sort of 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 sweat sex and drugs and weapons and kind of just let let that affect me but you know you're absolutely right this is kind of a film that it reminds me of the days when filmmakers didn't hold back you know it's so visceral and 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 almost tarantino like in it's like brutality so i'm proud to be on screen with people who've got some cojones you know in in this day and age especially where everyone is is so sensitive
0: spencer have you had the opportunity of seeing this in a theater yet during one of the festival screenings or or, or at any point with an audience
2: unfortunately i haven't had a chance to see it in theaters i was um i was looking today and unfortunately it's playing like a couple miles away but there's just no way for me to see the earlier showing or the later showing because i would miss our show um, I was thinking about just skipping out on our show and just <laughs> going to see it. Well, I was going to say, on, man. <laughs> get, get, Let's call the theater and have him arrange a private showing right. uh,
1: <laughs> It's yeah. because I want him to see it in a the theater so bad. Like, to me, this thing needs to live in the theater, and it's so amazing that we got it there because it's not easy to do if you're not Disney or Marvel, Right. The theater this is how like Tarantino discovered things right like this is going to the theater is about an experience and being moved and going on a journey and sort of coming out maybe a little different than you went in and and not these kind of movies you, you can't go and see anymore so that's like another nod that, that it's just incredible but I also think like the drive-in aspect of this movie would really live well in so I'm sad because I saw it last night. And uh, in New York City, and Spencer's really good in it, and he's really badass, and he's really cool. And we did talk about his character a little bit. He may not remember, but we did a little in about the scene before he got there. But he came just... What he just said right now, I just want to tell you, like, he's like he lived sort of truthfully in the in the environment and in the imaginary circumstance. It's because he's able to do that because he's a storyteller and he has an imagination and whether he and obviously he's uh, a very intelligent uh, uh, horror watcher and and, and person. Um, but I think because he tells stories through his music and he writes. It's you're, he, he was able to access that pretty damn easily. So it's a it's a creative non to him, and I think uh, music and acting has gone hand in hand a long time, but. I think what you have to do is uh, with these guys is maybe he's, you're used to performing big, right? But he also he does a lot of killer music videos too. So he's been on sets, but maybe just pull it in and bring it behind your eyes and trust it. And it's like always about the pinch, never the ouch. So if you know it's there, you're not going to push for anything, you know? But like he said, to get back to his point, he's really good in the scene and all the musicians are. I think they all bring it in this. And that was like the number one goal to make it a movie first. Because imagine, oh, we have six cam. In here, this and you'd be like, Come on, can that movie be good? But you talked about some of the accolades we got, and that was what was the best and most rewarding to me was that it was being accepted at the beginning by the genre. And I was like, Wait a minute. The number one goal was to make it symbiotic and not, not leech off these guys' core audience, but make them want to be proud to be in it. You know, so far, horror heads are are enjoying it. We've gotten some great reviews. So hopefully uh, people people catch on and, and like it for a movie. And then they go, wait a minute, that dude, Max, is sick. Girls are like, he's so hot. They look him up. Hey, look him up. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a chart. It's <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, none of the cameos, if you didn't know, you couldn't place them as just, you know, musicians who, who haven't necessarily all acted before performing in movie roles. Like, all the guys from, I mean, most of Five Finger Death Punch is in this movie is some of these these crime lords. And, uh, you know, you'd have no idea. What was the process? I love that you said about, you know, telling us more about the pinch than, than the ouch. It's this wonderful said to get some of these other guys like the five finger death punch guys or or Jacoby Shaddix to who've been in music videos before. I know Spencer's been in more, a lot of really theatrical music videos, but some of these guys who might not have that, that extra experience that, that Spencer has doing, you know, those kind of productions. What was it like kind of reeling those guys in and, and making them come across so convincingly?
1: I think like, I think what people don't realize is that it's always all about the work. And all the rest of the stuff comes, you know what I mean? Like if you're going to get an agent or a manager, or you're going to be at an award show, or you're going to do press. It's all about the work, bottom line. And these guys have amazing work ethics. They understand that. They're pros. Uh, And they're not afraid to do the work. So in talking, like I remember I called Jacoby, like this is a while ago, way before we shot it shot and i'm like hey man he's like oh dude my heels are killing me i'm like why he's like i jumped off the stage last night i'll never forget it's how we started the conversation and i'm like hey do you want to be part of this movie and i explained the whole film to him talk to him and we wanted to be very like uh we chose their characters in casting it was very important to us to make sure that these guys were comfortable in their roles and as i said that they they were they were actors first in this film so that happened with everybody. Five finger death punch. They play a motorcycle gang. They're pretty big burly dudes, right. With dreaded beards and they, and, and they were just fit the look perfectly, but they all brought it. So it was about talking to everyone and these guys doing the work and coming prepared. And they all did. Yeah. Michael working as a co-director with Samuel Gonzalez Jr. and Bridget Smith. How was it uh, decided? Which scenes you get to direct? Uh, uh, this one was kind of simple. It was COVID. um, what happened was uh, Bridget's really great at story and she creates a wonderfully safe environment and acting sort of about trusting and jumping off that cliff and, you know, not to get too thespian, but that's, you know, she, she creates a comfortable environment and Samuel was amazing at style. Like if you're, you know, he he just really, he could shoot up through a table into your eyeball and you'd see a silhouette of like a machete. Like he's just so, so cool with his style. And that was a very nice collaboration. And then when COVID hit, we had to film in multiple locations. So I took the reins to direct. The reason why it worked for me, I think, and hopefully, and it kept it like collaboratively smooth was because i was on set every day as an actor and a producer with them and i knew the story so well so i felt like i was able to ride the line in the middle and we had to go to vegas nevada to shoot with five finger and we couldn't bring a full crew so i filmed a lot of those scenes uh, edit, uh directed and storyboarded them out and took my time with them so it was a uh, the collaboration i think worked pretty nicely in this case and that's how it came about
0: hmm. spencer who did you end up working with on your scene
2: I did um, with Samuel. And uh, like Michael was saying, he's got just such a a, a visual flair for making things really pop and uh, seeing, um, seeing the finished product, unfortunately not in, in um, the theater, but when I was sent the link to the the film a few months back, it just, um, he really puts everything on screen. And, you know, this is for most part a low budget film, but like, it's like what you guys did with it. You put every cent up on that screen, so it, it, it doesn't feel low budget. It looks amazing, and yeah, uh, you know, he was he was great to work with.
0: Yeah, you can tell like the the mechanics of the uh, I guess the personality of the camera throughout this is very cinematic and helps it helps it look huge. Like um, there's almost startling movement to the camera. That brings us right into the action, and that 's stuff that you only get <laughs> you know with people who with a real reverence for cinema, like a rolling camera when we 're at the van in the beginning or or in any of the intense action scenes, including spencer 's whenever so, you know a, a fight scene will fall to the ground, the camera will fall to the ground with us and, and actually be beside their head or whatever, like those little subtle movements make such a big deal was there any discussion about what the personality the overall personality of the camera would be like in creating this
1: yeah absolutely i mean that there always is there's a lot of prep in all this and you have an idea and you have a vision when you get to set you might not be able to execute it the way the way you thought and maybe sometimes that makes it uh Not as good, but sometimes it can be better because you have to adapt, of course, and there's not a lot of time moving fast. But, you know, a lot of it's storyboarded out. You kind of get the idea. Joseph Hennigan is the DP on this one, and it's amazing. And he's such a hardworking guy. And I can't say enough about the crew. Can't do anything without them. These guys were so loyal through COVID, like shutdowns. We got shut down. About the Screen Actors Guild because there was such over-concern, rightfully so, in protocol. This is at the beginning, early stages. Like one of the guys in Vegas, the locations guy, not us, not the crew. He got tested positive. I got the 911 call on the way to set. We wouldn't let you, you test outside before you come to set. That's how it is. So expensive. But anyway, uh, we we got shut down and that was like a Tuesday or Wednesday and they didn't even get back to us till Monday. So. So that's how it would work. Uh, but anyway, to get you, it, it, it's all thought out, but you, then you got to roll with the punches and you can't get too bummed in situations. You're like, I didn't get that. And then you can't sleep. But then you got to look at the dailies and you're like, Oh, maybe it was better than I thought, you know? Yeah.
0: Did you have to end up? Losing- oh, what were you, Spencer, are you going to add something or no?
2: No, no. I was just thinking about that. How, um, you know, filmmaking is such an arduous task to begin with. You put on top of that, everything that you guys had to deal with, with those shutdowns and, it's, it's it's remarkable um, how you got what you guys did with it. I was just impressed. With all those
0: kind of hurdles and things, was there anything that you ended up having to kind of drop from the script or change significantly to kind of circumvent issues that you were facing?
1: Yeah, there certainly was. Well, some sh- stuff we did shoot, but it didn't work. Like, you know, the obviously the big bad guy played by Joseph Gatt, Like he beat, beat my ass so much in this movie. And we did nights, we did nights. Right. Uh, And, and, you know, we're obviously he has no shirt on. I'm in a t-shirt. It's 19 degrees uh, in, in, in in like late March in the woods. And um, because some of the uh, other scenes changed, the connective tissue didn't work anymore because it would, so the, all we did, like, I think three or four nights like that fighting black and blue. He's such a good stunt guy. He's really good. So he was as careful as could be, but you still definitely leave with bumps and bruises. But I I, I talk about that and, and it was hard in the moment, but it's not like we're taking ditches. You know what I mean? We're having I'm making a movie, so I'm not I'm not complaining. But um, anyway, so, yeah, all that stuff we didn't use. Then we couldn't get other things. We had to adapt. There were scenes that we just couldn't shoot logistically because the budget. But we carefully thought out how we had to move and sort of weave and bob to, to get something that would hopefully be just as good, if not better. But it definitely had to make adjustments and pivot constantly.
0: Yeah. What was the prep like for your big fight scene with Joe? That was intense, man.
1: Yeah. It's a little nod to Fargo in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. You know what? Um, uh, Norman Douglas. I was on, We already said this, with Rescue Me about firefighters, a lot of stunts, right? So this guy, Norman Douglas, who I knew from my show back then, I called him and he's like, I'll be the stunt coordinator on this. And he's such a pro and he's so good. So he kind of did me a favor and came on and we just rehearsed them a lot where we wanted to you know, really be real so while uh, we'd just have mats and stuff or whatever and just be rehearsing on the sides and when we got to set we'd just shoot the thing and, and Joe the DP or the director would know what our sort of movement was and then we'd just play and they'd shoot it but I wanted everything dirty and real. There's a lot of crazy gore scenes especially in the third act what was the most difficult gore effect or scene to pull off while shooting? Uh, all practical effects, which I'm really happy with, you know, we didn't have to go to any CGI or anything. Uh, they were all tough in their own way, because with those things, you do this big setup and then the blood has to spurt just at the right time. And it doesn't. And then someone's got to run in. But then now the shirt's bloody and it wasn't before. So you have to change it, clean up. So they all had their moments. Uh yeah, I, I, if I say it, I'm going to give a big spoiler alert, but I'll say this. It, in the barn that we were just referring to, one of my favorites is uh, in the barn um, at the end. Yeah. And The bracelet. Let's talk. Let's say. Sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's a damn good one. That's a damn good one.
2: The Boo Crew will be right back. If you or your wife or anyone you love has ever been mugged or molested or walked the streets in fear, you should see the movie Death Wish and see what one man did about it. He got himself a gun and went hunting for muggers. Dino De Laurentiis presents Charles Bronson in Death Wish. Death Wish, a Michael Winner film at the Paramount Lower
0: Regent Street now. Certificate X, Death Wish. At one point, you go into this kind of like, uh, it's my favorite set in the movie. It's it's extraordinary. You go into this like pinball machine Costco, it looks like. And then in the back, there's like a boxing training gym. Where on earth is this location? Does that exist in the real world? Or was it manufactured to be the best of of both worlds?
1: Well, that's funny. Those are the scenes, a few of the scenes that I directed that we had to go back and get. So. We went to the Pinball Hall of Fame. Oh, yes. Shop we were coming in Vegas. Then we were at a warehouse and it was fair, you know, again, thought out to have it seem like it's connected in the back, but it's really not. It was just a warehouse and we built that sort of boxing jam. And that's Robert Nepper. Yeah. He actually, he's amazing.
2: Amazing.
1: So he was sick to work with and he studied at, at Esper with me many years earlier, but so him and Mark Menchaka, and I all studied at William Esper in New York City, who, to me, when I cast these guys, I just love that because it's actors, actors, you know, Sam Rockwell, Kathy Bates, Jeff Goldblum, Paul Sorvino, a lot of great people studied with Bill. And uh, I just love the studio. I can't say enough about it. So I connected with them on that, that level. And I thought what was so important is this is on the highbrow side of horror. So to sell the story, we needed good actors down and dirty ones, if you will. And uh, so I was really happy to get those guys in this film.
0: Yeah, Robert John Burke also, who's been in some of these movies we're talking about, right? The RoboCop series and thinner and all that stuff. It does add like like another level of levity, I think, to everything, right?
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was the intention. Okay, musically,
0: it's got metal basically baked into its DNA. Spencer, what did you think kind of watching overall the arc of the film and, and how music was incorporated, not only in the score, but into the plot point of them in the film in some ways to kind of augment and elevate certain aspects of what was going on.
2: Well, I think to go back to what um Michael was saying earlier about like having the members of bands have cameos, nothing felt shoehorned in. And that's really the way that I felt about the music too. Um, it just, uh, it seems to me like the horror genre ha- has lost the rock and roll spirit in a way, you know, in the 80s and 90s, whether it was like, you know, Alice Cooper being part of some of the Friday the 13th movies or, you know, Dokken in, in uh, Dream Warriors, uh, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. And even through the 90s, when they would still use like heavy metal and rock bands in horror films, Whether it's Scream or Freddy vs. Jason or whatever, um, we sort of, I feel like we've lost that over the last, like, 15 to 20 years. So to have um, those worlds cross pollinate once again, it just feels so right. And I I think this film really pulled it off brilliantly. I was uh, seeing Song of the Movie and uh, get, you know, Ice Nine Kills to to be on a song with Motley Crue. I mean, that's kind of like, a Pike dream right there.
0: What do you think it is that, that, that element added to those movies that you're talking about, like dream warriors and judgment night. And what do you think that that element added in that cross pollination that you're talking about to the action on screen, just in general?
2: Well, I think just on like a cellular level, like we always talk about, there's such um, similarities and crossover between hard rock, heavy metal and, and horror movies just because inherently they're intense. Forms of art, even though they're different mediums, and uh, you know, t- to me, th- some of the the modern music of today—not like taking a knock at it—but I-, I think it it, um, it doesn't necessarily have that visceral emotion to it that I see kind of put on screen sometimes with horror. And there's one thing, you know, w- when there's dichotomy used on purpose, you know, whether it's you know Rob Zombie having a, a, a very a graphic scene and it's like, you know, Leonard Skinner playing in the background, like that kind of stuff I like. But, um, I just feel like over the last 15 to 20 years, we sort of lost the script, no pun intended on, uh, including, uh, this genre of music with films like this. And it's so refreshing to see Michael, you bring that back to where it should be. In my opinion. Mm,
0: Very well said. Also musically, Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein are on as composers. This is a team behind Stranger Things, The Guest. That's about as strong a pedigree as one could find. Tell us about bringing them on board and and working with them.
1: Yeah, well, when when I I said the film had that wink at the 80s, so that was like the dream. Um, You know, one of the Gear Brothers is like, I, I told you, like Darren, both of them, but we're just, he's my creative partner. So our dream... Was to get the Stranger Things guys and that synthy sound. When it happened, and Alan and Better Noise made it happen, we were just like because as we have all this great music. And then to me, obviously, John Carpenter. Uh, we can go on and on about scores, but like I, I, I like Friday the Thirteenth. Just the like that is so Jaws. Uh, all these scores are so important, and I don't think you know, maybe someone will pick up on one scene where we have a great score. It's not like we have this unbelievably one score in there, but I think as a whole or memorable score that, that, you know, would ever uh, reach the height of, of those scores. But I think as a whole with the music and the vibe of the film, we couldn't have been luckier to actually land those two guys. We sent them the rough cut and they're like, were in. I was like, what? I called Darren, dude! We got the Stranger scenes, <laughs> guys! We were <laughs> flipped. <laughs>
2: flipped. Yeah, by the way, Spencer, did you get to uh, shoot any additional scenes or extended versions of your scenes that did not make the final cut? Well, uh, Michael, I think you could speak to that. Uh, originally, we filmed a scene with me that I, I don't think is in the final version, Right, where I was a different character, right? Yeah. Is totally. that true? Uh, yeah, where we were, it was something with like a I was driving a car through sort of like a almost like a cornfield and that that whole scene I don't think maybe we'll put it on the DVD or something, Blu-ray. Yeah. But, um, to my knowledge that's the only thing that I filmed that's not really on on
1: screen. Yeah, that's when I first met Spencer. He came out. This was the early stages and we had to take a look at it because again, I think I told you the most important thing Every step of the way of, for me was to make this a movie. And like I said, if you didn't know, uh, you, d- you might think uh, the dude who plays Quinn Brady's a good actor. Then you look him up. Oh, my God. That's the, the lead singer of Papa Roach. I said about Spencer earlier, right? So I think that Spencer's first cameo, and this is when we got off to the start of this, and I didn't have my hand in that one exactly. I mean, I had my hand in everything, but I didn't make the call on that one. I felt it felt shoehorned in and it wasn't as natural to the story. So I went to bat. We had to pull it back and regroup. So Spencer was kind enough. And that's the other thing. All these guys, we shot this thing so long ago. And here's Spencer taking the time to, and I appreciate that so much to come on and support the movie because we're coming out in theaters tonight. Everybody creatively had to sacrifice a lot and say, okay, I'm going to, I shot this two years ago, or it went on and on like that. And we were very careful because at the end of the day all that stuff doesn't play uh onto what's on the screen it's all about what we actually capture so This happened often where I would look at the dailies, look at this, go back, take our time, figure out a way we're going to get it, what we need to do, see how it fits in. Then we brought in Randy Bricker, who edited this. We needed a guy with horror and story. Randy Bricker goes back so far that he was an apprentice on the movie The Firm with Tom Cruise. He was on a Legend Mm -hmm. Halloween franchise. The Chucky Chucky movie. Would you remember which one, Spencer? You know uh, which one. Uh, I,
2: know, I remember seeing that he worked on uh, Curse of Michael Myers, Halloween 6, which is one of, of my favorite, uh, at, at least from an editing standpoint, part of the Halloween franchise. So that was so cool to see him involved.
1: Yeah. So when we brought him in, I sat down with him in the editing room and went through everything. And now he's on the Chucky franchise, the TV show. So anyway... That's what we did, and we massaged it out, and we were very careful. And the pandemic sort of worked in our favor in some ways on that because we had time. We knew we wanted to get out the streaming, but again, we didn't want to rush the process. So it, it was about uh, you know the final product and what we got on the screen. So that, that sort of happened throughout in some circumstances. Of course, you have a budget, so you're not going to you know you can't get too crazy. But we knew we had to get it right.
0: Yeah. The one thing you'll notice, too, is, as a viewer, is there's no cheap scares in this film. Everything is earned. And I think it's because of the strength of the story that supports everything going on. Were there other things that were important to everyone not to incorporate? What was the common goal across the entire team of the movie that you set out to make versus what it could be if you weren't careful? You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I think I do, but you want to know something crazy. The, this story uh, in, is, is, is it has an origin. It's inspired by a true, true life uh, story. And what I mean by that is, it's not exactly this story that we tell in the retaliators, but the concept, if you had a minute alone with the person who hurt your loved one, would you take it? Um, the Gear Brothers, their little sister several years ago, when she was like 18 years old about 12 years ago was walking home from a party in Northern California California and she was attacked and uh and, and and brutally like raped and the guy tackled her down a ravine and it's a long really crazy story but she fought her way out and um she got help she went back she did the whole DNA kit the rape test everything over several years, they never caught the guy. So it's what happened to their dad and what happened to her. She survived and everything. And, uh, cut to about five years ago, they caught the guy. He was, he, he he was trying to rape someone else and they, they got him. And then the DNA matched hers from, from several years earlier. And, uh, now that the family had to go through trials and, uh, And and they they saw her sister, their sister having to relive this. And the one year Darren said to his brother, hey, man, imagine if there was a service where we could just have one minute alone with this guy. And they wrote the retaliators as a sort of healing, a creative healing, if you will. And they put, that's what really, I, I think when I talked about the story, what really attracted me as an actor, because the end of the day, the movie is a sort of it was made to be a fun roller coaster, entertaining film. But you might talk about it a little bit afterward because these things are sort of bred into the script, and they actually happened to the Gear Brothers. Wow, that's fascinating. Wow. And I mean, you play that wow. the way you play
0: uh, Bishop is so conflicted, too. Right? There's a nod to uh, an, an homage, like an actual line mentioning the character you know bruce willis's character in die hard at one point and you know why can't why can't you be more like him and uh it's it's so interesting to watch kind of bishop's transformation throughout this because i think honestly i think bishop acts how most of us would would act if we we're in that situation to begin with right that trepidation and that that fear of turning into into a monster yourself and i think you played that beautifully was that a hard arc to achieve as an actor
1: you know, I think. Well, thank you for your words. I think the thing is, you know, I have a six-year-old son, so I think if you have a kid or a niece or a nephew, you get a little shoe into that. And you could imagine. I think. Remember, I remember when I was little, thinking about if someone ever hurt my parents. You know, that it's that a uh, primal instinct of revenge. You know, it's the oldest tale in the book. It's like love, right? It's like it's been done many times, but I think it is interesting when you put a man of the cl- from the cloth in that situation, um, but. So I think it's easy to say, you know, I'd take revenge. I'd want revenge. We all understand that feeling. But I think if you had that human being in front of you, could you really do it? And I think that's what's interesting um, about this. But yeah, I think in, in terms of the arc, I did a lot of research. I'll tell you guys one quick story that I saw this YouTube video. And it was this guy who looked like if you were to cast him, you'd make him like a math teacher, right? It's a true life YouTube thing I found. And he's standing there in court. And, uh, he has a moment to talk to his son's killer and the, the court cops are on each side of him and he starts to talk to him. He's addressing him at the end of the trial. And all of a sudden he lets out this howl from like the depths of his soul. It was like so primal and he jumped over the stand onto the guy and tried to start stabbing him with a pencil and they had to grab him and pull him off. And I was like, that's it, you know? that loss that he experienced and then having the guy in front of him so anyway um there were many things you know going to live sermons studying that talk doing this crazy which you don't want to go to this imaginary work with my kid and you know all this stuff and then uh, you know, uh, to try to understand the script and the real true meaning of what that might feel like. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh man. It's so cathartic to watch though. And in the, in the, in the midst of all this, you really get to get your Bruce Campbell on, you get to get soaked in blood and the fun begins. The real fun begins. What was it like going through that as a performer and just being soaked in all that stuff? What were you being soaked in and just the process and, and fun of that?
1: uh spencer you were in blood too what was yours like i'll tell you about mine but what was yours like? <laughs> oh man
2: and i've been soaked in blood many times in my life <laughs> like every night on tour um, but this was the stick this was, yeah but there was something about filming in this big complex right when we were filming in vegas and it was so hot in there um but it, 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 sort, it sort of added to the whole atmosphere of what you would expect this sort of sex dungeon drug lair to be like. And I just remember I, I couldn't get the blood off. It, it, the blood must have been on me for about three or four days after. And I also had all these other additional fake tattoos that, that you know, because the, the five-figure death punch guys already look like that. I've got a few tattoos. But um, so I had that on me. I had the blood and the sweat fake cocaine all over me. And, um, I don't know. I mean, anytime you get uncomfortable in these situations, you're like this is what I'm getting paid to do. This is my life. I'll take it. So I, I, yeah, n- nothing but uh, positive energy for me, even considering all the, all the crap that was all over me. But, um, I, having my head and spoiler alert at some point, I, there's, there might be a plastic bag over my head and, um, so that was an interesting, um, experience to be in, but at no point did I ever feel like I was actually in danger, uh, even when I had the gun in my mouth. So. Props to you and your crew for being such pros. You hear all that, listener? <laughs> <laughs> There's a
0: lot. All the fun that awaits you when you watch Retaliators. Michael, Michael, how about you going to your experience? It's yeah. you know crazy.
1: I think Spencer was going to say it. The blood was really sticky, too. Like there was a, I don't know what it was, cornstarch, whatever. So the hardest thing for me, I hate any kind of makeup, right? But in between takes, your t-shirt sticking to your chest oh. or if you down your chin. It was the most uncomfortable thing. Um, and really tough to get out so get this speaking of that to get off I, I i watched one of the last scenes of the movie where my character's clean i looked at the in the post-production house and I, i'm like wait a minute and i saw blood on my ear a little <gasps> And like, no way. Every time I went to a festival and I saw it on the big screen, that's all I'd see. So of I just went in before we come out of the theaters and streaming and had them touch it up so you can't see it anymore. It, co- it cost a few bucks, but that, I, I was obsessed with it after that. Sure. It was one of those instances where I, and I don't even remember what I shot that day, but we must have done one of the blood things first and then went and shot that so I couldn't get it all off.
0: Well, as we wrap up here, I uh, just want to go quickly to Spencer, man. so we haven't spoken since you did this, but Ice Nine Kills launched their very own horror convention, Silver Scream Con, over in Massachusetts. So how did it play out? And would this be a new annual thing?
2: Oh, man, it was absolutely amazing. You know, for a first-year convention especially, what you hope for is that all the fans and, and the celebrities leave with with positive vibes and, from everything that we could tell from, you know, Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead to Kane Hodder and Jason to all these people that attended the festival. They said it was the, the best first year convention they've ever been to. And, um, it was just incredible Three, over 3000 people attended exceeding our expectations, ticket sales wise. And, uh, I can't wait uh, to do it again next year. So it's going to be like a continuous thing. And next year we got to have the retaliators be part of it. It'll be perfect.
1: That's what I was thinking. If this thing takes off, I got a year to try to get into the next, into Spencer's next one. So let's see.
2: I know a guy.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Spencer, anything else? Anything else going on in Ice Nine Kills world to watch out for?
2: Well, uh, tonight, now that I'm thinking about it, there's a 7 p.m. showing and I got to be on stage at 1010. I feel like I'm going to have to just go to the theater and see as much of it as I can and then hike back to to the amphitheater. But my part, my, I mean, my part happens within, what, 40 minutes of the movie? Yeah, I'll, you'll make I'll it. i only see that yeah about an hour <laughs> so that's what's going on in my world trying to figure out how i can see the movie in theaters and, and, and not miss my own show <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. i know that there won't be any nice nine kills fans there because they're all at the show right. down the road <laughs> oh right.
0: wow that's put someone in a pennywise mask and they could do the rest of the yeah. show and you can go down and watch them yeah, yeah. you don't need me, you
1: don't need me. Yeah, I, I saw spencer it was amazing and what was so cool about this is to, you know, you I know him as a guy. He's such a great dude. He's so cool, obviously. I know what he does, but, and then he was great in the film, but then I saw him in concert and I was like, wow, to see all these kids singing his lyrics and all bobbing their heads. I was like, it was really cool to, uh, I was so proud because, you know, just to see him in his element, acting was his element as well, but you're doing that in a closed set. It's a lot different. But To see him up there's, commanding uh that and his presence and his show by the way was really freaking cool and uh I wanted to add to that too. He's on, he sings on the retaliators theme song. How many movies have a theme? song? Right. Like the self-sung yeah.
0: theme song that references yeah. the stuff you just saw in the movie that plays. over right. like so cool.
1: Yeah. He said it earlier, like, you know, Nikki six wrote the tune with James Michael, uh, you know, Tommy plays drums on it and there's a lot of featured artists, but Spencer's vocal kills on this thing. And when he said he'd do it, we were so happy because, you know, it's, it's the theme song to the movie. Um, so it's pretty special.
0: Who ended up writing the lyrics? Uh, Nicky, Nicky, six, you know, Nicky right? six wrote the lyrics. Wow, nice. wow! You got it all in there, man. That the self-sung <laughs> yeah. movie theme song is—is is yeah. that that's a thing that's that's become extinct, right? It's so it was so fun to hear that. I remember the last one I remember, like the Monster Squad, had the rap about the Monster Squad at the end. I can't really think of any other movies that have done it recently, right? I,
2: it's got to be it. My Spencer? favorite was always uh, My Bloody Valentine, the uh, ballad of Harry Warden right yeah yeah
0: i think there's one at the end of texas chainsaw three i think too there is a metal yeah it's a self-sung theme song at the end of texas chainsaw three i forget the name of the band but it does exist
2: but yeah that's so fun so fun to have a a theme song for the for the movie that's just like bringing in that sort of retro vibe is uh, just another uh feather in the cap there it's part of the magic michael
0: a sequel planned are we gonna see john bishop fight again
1: I'm going to tell you this, the gear brothers and I had so much fun in this on so many levels that they already have just for fun. These guys have this in the back of their house. They call it the 80s room and it's really cool in there. They go in there and just get down and they've been writing because uh, there's a lot more places this can go. So at this point, like literally for fun, they just continue on because, uh, you know, they're just so creative and they they like playing. So they have stuff and we've talked a lot about it and where this can go. Um, so we'll see. You know, it would be really cool.
0: That would be amazing. We need a Max spinoff movie. The Adventures of Max. Yep. Cocaine yeah. Max.
1: Right? What's Max in the prequel? How did he get to where he is now? Exactly. 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 Yeah. I love it. Uh, Even get, give
2: me 10 minutes before where I was seemed like it would be a good <laughs> time.
0: Right. <laughs> right. It'd be rated.
2: That's the whole prequel right there. Yeah. Yes, it
0: awesome, you guys. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know we went over, but this has been a blast. Yes. And uh, so get out there, see Retaliators. That said, after this theatrical release, what are the plans for streaming? Where are people going to be able to check it out after after today?
1: Yeah, we're still crossing the finish line with that. Like I said, there's always work to do. We 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 have our uh, our deal in place. We're hoping we're going to do a four week exclusive because it'll pop up. It is just tonight, and it's interesting because the way this they did this was one night only. It's sort of a venti cinema, and in this climate, it's tricky. You know, I mean, there's still not many people going to the theater. There's actually some some uh, you know some some chains closing, um, but we're we're also like October fifth. Another night. So, so it's sort of scattered the way it's happening. Um, so it's tricky. You have to go to the retaliators dot com website and see where it is. But, but tonight's the big night where we're blowing it out. But it does. Scat- so there's a four week exclusive to see where it lives. And then we'll hit streaming, you know, closer to Halloween.
0: Awesome. So exciting you guys. Well, well done, yes. Spencer and Michael. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Man. Yes.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you guys so, you. so much. Thank you
1: guys so much. Yeah. Yes, and congrats to you. So stoked for you, man. Thank you, man. So much. Thanks for being part of it. It's a it's a life-changing journey and Spencer and the other musicians in it. Who would have thought like this would happen to me and it's sort of came full circle because I have a musical background. Now these guys that's for sure but it's a cross paths with acting and it to come together is really special for me and you know I'll, I'll live with it the rest of my life I'm very proud and uh, and and thanks for having me on this and thanks to you Spencer Absolutely man
0: have a great show tonight man yes bye guys all right we'll see ya thanks so much i'll see you guys later. later bye, bye That was the Booker Podcast, episode 346. Special thanks to our guests, Michael Lombardi and Spencer Charnas. At time of release, see The Retaliators in limited theaters tonight. And watch RetaliatorsMovie.com for all the info on how and when you can experience it. Production tracks for this one provided by the good folks at Power Man 5000. Till next time, this is Trev for the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams.
2: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is love. Lauren and Trevor Shand, and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, For disturbing and terrifying. Trying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.